Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ask Katie anything. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I am your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I'm so glad that you're here. Today, we have, I believe, eight questions, and they run the gamut. Lots of things about uh, emotional neglect, sexual abuse, uh, things with a therapist. Why does a therapist do this? If you're wondering where I get these questions, I get them on the community tab of the YouTube channel in which I post my um, podcasts. And that YouTube channel is called Opinions That Don't Matter. I usually post in the community tab of that channel asking for your questions around like two or three o'clock Central Standard Time on Sundays. Um, So you can get your questions in that way. I've tried to move the time around a little just to accommodate people from different time zones. Anyways, that's a roughly when it will be uh, posted so that you can pop your question in. And uh, I do pick the ones with the most thumbs ups first. And then the last one or two can be like these random selections where I just pick, they don't have the most thumbs up. I just like scroll, boop, and pick one. Okay. Um, and if you're wanting your question answered, I also have a Patreon page. You can go to patreon.com forward slash Katie Morton. I answer questions there each and every month at the $20 tier and above. And those, we have a live stream where I answer them. Those live streams usually last around like three hours or so. And at the $1 a month tier, you can participate, meaning you can join those live streams and hang out with us. So I hope that helps. Okay. Without further ado, let's jump into your questions. And question number one says, hi, Katie, I've experienced emotional neglect and physical abuse from my parents and family members. I'm so sorry. I struggle with depression and anxiety right now. Even when I feel quite all right, I feel an emptiness inside of me, like something is missing, like there's no me. And I felt this way in my childhood. Everything that I've done before, I did only because it was the quote unquote right thing to do, or it was expected by society. I'm 23 and I have no idea what to do or who I am. I've tried seeking help, but it's hard for me to talk about my feelings or my life. And even when I do, I start to feel more depressed, emotional, and this void in me only grows. And nothing that I do seems to help get rid of this feeling. I feel like I'm too much, even for the therapist to handle when I speak openly to them, or I feel like I'm a burden to them. I think that might come from your childhood. We'll talk about that. And I'm scared that they would see the emptiness in me or that I don't have desire to live. I'm going to try and see a psychiatrist and after that, seek another therapist. How do, or how to find hope in all of that? How do I speak with a therapist when my head stops working or when I really don't know the answer or I'm afraid that my answer would be too much? 
how to stop working on or how to start working on all these issues? This is a great question. Um, and there's a lot to unpack here. So I want to go back into the question where you said that you feel like you might be too much. Where is it? I feel like I'm too much even for my therapist to handle. And I'm scared they're going to see this emptiness in me. Okay, all of that. Now, the belief that we are too much or that we're taking up too much space and that we like essentially don't have a right to be there. That I believe is coming from the fact that you were neglected and physically abused. Almost in inaction or action, right? Emotional neglect is inaction, physical abuse is action. But in those inactions and actions, we're receiving this message growing up that something's wrong with us, that we're too much, that us expressing a want or a need is bad. And that could have been, again, reinforced through inaction or action, through emotional neglect or physical abuse. And that's why this is coming up for you. I'm not saying it to say like, it's no big deal. That's why it's coming up. Move past it. No, I just want you to know that it come, it has a purpose. And it has come, it's grown through our life for years and years and years and years for 23 years. As we experienced all of that abuse, we're told over and over this message. And so we're like, okay, message received. And now that we're trying to work on ourselves, we go into therapy, all those old beliefs and messages come right out. And I want you to know that you have every right to be in therapy. You are not too much for your therapist. You're not too much for anybody. In fact, these are lies, unfortunately, and abu abuse that you sustained based on things that had more to do with your parents' inability to parent than it had anything to do with you. I mean, just consider for a second, which is what we're going to move into now, is like, baby, you, what, like you chose to be born on that certain time and like you had any control over the basic needs that you had as a child. I mean, if we would look at any baby, would you want to blame them for needing to be fed or needing to be held when they cried or needing their diaper to be changed? That's just basic care for a child. No one would blame the baby. That would be, it doesn't make any sense, right? If we think about it that way. And so I really think the work for you in therapy is going to be, sorry, it feels like there's something in my eyeball. Okay. <clears throat> is going to be that inner child work. We're going to need to find photos or videos or anything uh, of you as a child. If we can, even in our memory, pull a memory of ourselves at us like when we're little and start doing that work. I have an inner child workshop available on my website. Um, also, you can do it with your therapist. There's tons of books in my Amazon shop. Go to amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Katie Morton. The books that I like for inner child work are in there. Um, yeah, that's where, I mean, my gut tells me that's where the work is going to be for you. And yeah, so now into your questions. So that those are just, that's just my take on it. Immediately when I read this, I was like, okay, well, this is going to have to be some inner child work because we have to combat those faulty beliefs or those false uh things that we keep telling ourselves about who we are and that we're too much and all of that. All those lies that are unfortunately our parents and our childhood like bred into us, we're going to have to work them out. And that will come through, you know, um, inner child work. Now you said you're going to try and see a psychiatrist, which I think is great because the fact that this like void and like depression and just kind of emptiness feeling is so palpable, just like 
so intense. I'm curious if maybe some medication can lift that depression up somewhat so that we can participate more fully in therapy. But let's get into your questions about therapy. You said, how do you find hope in all of that? I think hope is a hard thing to find when we're depressed. And a big part of me wants to say, talk to the psychiatrist and see about getting medication because I think inevitably, if we can find a medication that alleviates that depression just enough, that hope will come back. That little flicker of light at the end of the tunnel will start to reignite. So we can find hope that way. Also, I want you to have hope knowing that I've had tons of patients. I've had tons of viewers. I've had tons of people in my life go through depression, uh, survive abuse and heal, go on to change the way that they believe about, like the beliefs they have about themselves. That can be done. And so I want you to hold on to hope for that because I've seen it happen. Okay. But I also want you to know it's normal to not feel very hopeful when we're struggling with depression and when we're not on medication and it seems overwhelming, right? The emptiness seems overwhelming. I want you to know that's a symptom of your depression. It's not who you are. It's not something you're going to have to live with forever. It's something we have to figure out how to manage, okay? And then you said, how do you speak with a therapist when your head stops working or when I really don't know the answer or I'm afraid that my answer would be too much? I a couple things. And it says, how do you start, how to start working on all these issues? I don't really see it as all these issues. I see it as trying to heal from the abuse you sustained and challenge those false thoughts you have. So, or false beliefs or whatever you want to call them. Now, I would encourage you, like I do everybody, but more so you to start journaling. And the reason I say that is because I think this will help not only put language to our experience and potentially help us validate ourselves or at least see where we're invalidating ourselves, it'll be really fruitful. It'll be probably difficult, but I encourage you just to start writing. Now, I want you to grab any kind of journal or if you prefer to type, that's fine. I kind of prefer you to write it by hand, but it's not 100% necessary. It's just something that I think is a little better. But I want you to write and don't worry about if it's spelled correctly. I don't want you to worry if it's messy, if you can even read it back. I don't want you to even think that you're going to read it back, okay? I want you, and if you don't know what to write, say, I don't know what to write. I don't know what to write. I don't know what to write. Something will come up, okay? That's what I've kind of learned through my own journaling process. And I've been doing this work uh, workbook called The Artist's Way. We have to journal every day, every morning, three pages. And at the beginning, it was honestly really easy, I think, because I hadn't been journaling for a little while. So I had a lot to write about. But as I progressed, it gets harder and harder. Not that it's hard to figure out what to write about, that I feel like there's not as much there because I'm not so like full, right? And so for you, because you feel so empty, which to me is actually an indication that we're just overly full and we're dissociated and tapped out. I want you just to start writing about what thoughts are coming up, what's happening in your life, and start getting in the practice of journaling for, I would say a max of 30 minutes a day. Everybody's got 30 minutes. I know. I know I'm busy too, but I make time, but a minimum of 10 minutes. And that means you're writing consistently for 10 minutes. Okay. So keep doing this at least three to five days a week. Okay. You don't need to do it every day. But I think this will help kind of loosen things up so that when we go in to see our therapist, we can talk about some things. And if we don't know what to talk about, 
we can, we don't have to, we can reference our journal. We can bring it in and we can read from it. I think this is a way to kind of open us up. So that's one tip. Another tip is to let your therapist know that this is happening. We don't have to be able to talk about things. We can say like, hey, I feel like sometimes my head just stops working. And you can together come up with a plan. Okay, so when this happens, what should we do, right? Does it help if I ask more questions? Would it be better if we just colored together or played a game? I've, um, I used to color with a couple of my patients or even do collaging. We just like cut out things and start gluing because sometimes doing things with our hands keeps us busy and allows us to think like to say stuff without thinking too much. Does that make sense? And so it's a good distraction. So we would do that kind of stuff. I've had another patient who we played this game, Totika. Um, it's a, you can buy it on Amazon. Any therapist can buy it. It's like 20, 25 bucks. Um, anyway, you answer questions. I also have, I think they're called uh, conversation starters, these cards or chat cards or something. I got those. Um, those can be things that you might want to do with your therapist while you feel like your brain turned off and you're like, I don't know what to say. That keeps the conversation going without there being pressure for you to know answers and to say it just right when you feel like you're like, boop, offline. That's my second tip. Third and final tip is to use some grounding techniques. You might want to bring some thinking putty or silly putty with you. It's just like a thing you can play with, a fidget toy. Um, You might want to count colors, blue, what's, how many items are blue around the room? How many items are black around the room? You can do the ABCs, find an item that starts with the letter A, B, C, etc. Um, we might want to bring ice with us in a, in like a thermos and we can like hold on to ice or we can drink really cold water or put, you know, there's a bunch of, blah, 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 a bunch of things that we can do. Wow. That was a tongue twister. Um, and so those are some of my tips for in the session when you feel like your brain stops working. Now, you're when you're afraid your answer is going to be too much. I want this is this is something that we're going to have to battle as you do this work. But when you're worried your answer is going to be too much, that's coming from your abuse that you sustained growing up, thinking that you're too much, that every reaction you have is just too much. But I'm here to tell you it's not. And so when you have that thought, I want you to combat it with we could, we could bridge statement it, I guess. We could say like, I'm open to the fact that Katie said this is coming from abuse and maybe it's not true, right? We could bridge statement that. But part of me feels like it might be helpful for you to say to yourself, Katie said this is coming from my abuse. And I, I, I kind of want to believe her, okay? Let's argue against that because you're not too much. Your answers are not going to be too much. I can tell you with 100% certainty that your therapist can handle it. You've just always been told your whole life that you're too much to handle. And I'm here to tell you, you're not. Your parents just, and family members, didn't know how to do their jobs. And they couldn't handle themselves. Therefore, anything in their life felt like too much because they had the problem. Okay? I don't really see this as, like you said, how to start working on all these issues. I know you're feeling overwhelmed. That question makes me feel like you're thinking that it's like, it's too much again. It's really not. It's totally manageable. Let Just let your therapist know what you're experiencing. Let them know what's coming up for you. Tell them about the inner child work and that you think that might be a way in. You might be surprised what journaling reveals for you. You're not too much. These issues can be resolved. Sometimes we just have to give ourselves the time to work through it. Okay, you got this.
Okay, let's move on to question number two. This question says, hi, Katie, I was sexually abused by my brother who is five years older than me from the ages of five to nine. I originally went to therapy in an attempt to heal from this trauma, but I've pretty much just avoided the subject entirely and focused on other issues. Totally normal. Talking about something like that can be uncomfortable, right? It can be really difficult. So be patient with yourself. I think one thing that is holding me back is that I feel very guilty for having any negative feelings towards toward my brother because he was also a child. How can I talk about the ways his actions hurt me while also not feeling like I'm terrible and overdramatic and an overdramatic person for being upset with a child? I really appreciate any help. Thanks so much. Okay. Now, sibling sexual abuse or child on child sexual abuse, whatever you want to call it, is always tricky because of this, because the person who did harm to us also was a child and might be older, might be younger than us. It doesn't really matter either way. We have a t- we can have a tough time because we, it was just kid stuff or we were just being kids or whatever we tell ourselves about it, right? Now, this is going to be one of those tricky things for you to hold, but we can feel bad for our brother because he most likely was sexually abused himself. Maybe not, but most likely. And he was a child. And what he did was horrible. And those actions were harmful to us. And he was a predator. Those two things can can coexist. He can be a child. We can love him. He can be our brother. He could have been being abused too. And what he did was bad. And the reason... I want to say it like that. First of all, it's very important that we acknowledge that these two things can happen. We can, it's almost like when a parent abuses us, we can love our parent and they're still our mom or dad or whatever. However, what they did was really hurtful and abusive. Those two things can exist. I know we like to think that they don't and then it's one or the other, but that's what holds us in that trauma response and holds us in the space of thinking that we don't have a right to feel upset or anything like that. And we do. Okay, so with your brother, you can have both of these things happen because consider the fact that I can have a really shitty day. Let's say I get up in the morning. I'm like, ah, shit, I'm late. I look at the clock. I'm like, no, I'm so late. Okay, I race, race out the door. I forget the one thing I needed for my work presentation. I have to go back. So now I'm even more late, super maxed out. I get to the uh, this stoplight and I'm trying to go through it and somebody slows down because it's turning red and I wanted to rush through and I honk my horn and I flip them off and I'm like, fuck you. I'm so mad. I'm so late. Ah. Now that person that I was just abusive toward, now I know it's a strong word, but let's say verbally abusive, right? I'm like, fuck you. I'm honking my horn. Is it their fault? Because I had a shitty day and something bad happened to me, do they not have a right to to be like, what's her problem? Or to be upset about what I'm doing? No. And I know it might be a horrible and shitty analogy, but I think sometimes we forget that just because something someone else was a kid or someone else had a shitty thing happen to them, that doesn't mean we get carte blanche to do whatever the fuck we want. That doesn't condone harmful and abusive behavior. Right? So I don't care what happened to your brother. I don't care that he was a kid what he did, he's still responsible for his actions. Okay. You still have every right to be upset with him or at the very least feel validated in the fact that what happened to you was abuse. And that I know that can take time. 
but hopefully maybe that analogy helps. Maybe not. Also, when it comes to child-on-child sexual abuse, the thing that makes that person um, like older or more mature or the power that they have in the dynamic or the relationship is their knowledge of sex. We don't understand it. We don't know what's happening. We don't have any reason to have ever known what that was. And the fact that they do gives them, it puts them in a position of power. Obviously, he was also older than you, which is another position of power. But its I just want everybody to know that's not always the case. We can be the exact same age. The person who abuses can be younger. It doesn't really matter. It's the fact that they knew they knew about sex. They knew how to you know, perform certain acts. And that in and of itself made them more powerful than us. Okay? Now, um, let me make sure if I'm answering everything here. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, so you're feeling guilty about having negative feelings. Again, you can have both those things holding simultaneously. How do I talk about the actions, the way his actions hurt me and not feel like I'm terrible? Because you're not saying that he's unfixable and something's really wrong with him. And how, you know, we're not saying he was just like this devil child. But what we are saying is that some of the actions he took hurt us. And we didn't do anything to cause that. Remember the word guilt means that there was something, we, we did something wrong, right? There was some wrongdoing. Remember if we're guilty, we're found guilty, there's actually wrongdoing on our part. I'm curious what wrongdoing you have. It sounds like it might be because you're speaking up about it, because you're upset. Were you told as a kid that it wasn't okay to speak up, to admit when you needed support or to say that something was wrong? Or I don't know. I'm just curious where this guilt is coming from um, because you haven't done anything wrong. He's actually the one that acted in the wrong way, right? And he can be a child. He can be a good person. It doesn't really matter. His actions, we're all responsible for our actions. Things can happen to us, but that doesn't change the actions we take, right? We still are responsible for the actions we take after those things were done to us. Does that make sense? I hope so. Um there was a comment on this as I was abused by my cousin, pretty much the same ages. I do have the same question, but as an add-on, once you get talking, what do you even say? Do I have to, ex- uh, do I explain what was done to me? Going into specifics just seems so hard. Uh, we don't always have to. Talk therapy does, that's the way that talk therapy works. We slowly, you know, talk our way through as many details as we can about what happened to us. That's how that process works. However, we know through research that talk therapy only 
benefits about 40% of people. So there's like 60% of us that won't feel 100% better after doing that. And for those of us, or those of us who struggle to talk about the details, it's too hard to get into that. EMDR is a wonderful option. Somatic experiencing, that means it's like through movement in our bodies. Um, We could also try something like, you know, internal family systems or schema therapy. There's a bunch of different types of therapy when it comes to healing from trauma. And if talking about the details and the specifics is just, we're like, I can't do it. It's okay to find another style. That's why there are different styles to each their own, right? I recently have started EMDR myself for my own therapy. I've never done it before. Um, It's to help me with the grief that I'm dealing with, with loss in my family. Um, I have no idea how it works, really. I mean, like I've, I've read about it and the like logistics of it, but I've never done it. And it's so different to do it. And I have to be honest that I'm hopeful that it will be more fruitful than talk therapy has been. Talk therapy has been great, but I'm hoping that this will be even more. And it's supposed to only be like I think she said six to nine months. And sorry, I'm like fighting yawns because this is I'm doing this early in the morning. Um, so it's not you, it's me. <laughs> but I, um, it's another type of therapy because talk therapy, you know, it works. But I want to try something different, and maybe that you know that could be a way for you to go around the talking in detail and specifics. Because I know with EMDR, you don't even have to do that. Okay. Another person said, as a survivor of sibling um, sexual abuse, I cannot forgive my brother for what he did. I spent a lifetime feeling completely worthless, dirty, and disgusting. If it didn't happen, or I could have stopped it, I might've been strong enough to stop the older man from hurting me as well. Do I have to forgive? Is it possible to heal from this trauma without forgiveness? Okay. Um, I'm so sorry you had to go through that you couldn't have stopped it because you didn't know what it was. I think sometimes we forget about stuff like that. And we, I think inner child work could be helpful for you as well. It sounds like there's so much anger and blame that you're, you know, this guilt, shame, blame kind of spiral inside of you. I'm so sorry that you're going through that. Um, You don't have to forgive, but remember forgiveness is not about them. Forgiveness isn't condoning their behavior. Forgiveness doesn't mean reconciliation. When I forgive someone, it doesn't mean, oh, now we're going to be, things are good. Forgiveness is actually for us. Forgiveness says, I don't want to feel angry anymore. I want to let this go. I don't want to ruminate on this. I don't want to blame myself anymore. I have to forgive them for what happened so that I can move forward. Now, is it fucking hard? Yes. When someone has harmed us or harmed someone we love, it can be really hard to let that go and to forgive, frankly, because we we don't want to forgive them. But I want you to recognize, I think we can all admit the lack of forgiveness that we've offered. Again, they don't even have to know it's happening, by the way. Um, But not offering that forgiveness to them doesn't offer it to ourselves. And we stay caught in this cycle of anger, shame, blame, guilt, anger, shame, blame, guilt. And we just go around and around and around and around and we feel worse. Not forgiving only hurts us. They don't have to know what's happening. They don't have to know that you're moving past it and moving on. We just have to know. And so it's going to aid in your healing process. But I don't think that you have to forgive them in order to process through what happened and move forward. But it's it could... That anger and that lack of forgiveness in yourself can fester. And so it's more about you. 
I I think the forgiveness will come along in your process of healing from the trauma, but I don't think it's like a requirement up front. Okay. Let's move on to question number three. This question says, happy Sunday slash Thursday. <laughs> I love it. Um, it says, what do you as a therapist think if a patient is bringing up completely new information? This happens all the time, by the way. As a patient or client, I feel very uncomfortable after a therapy session in which I said, again, new things to my therapist. It feels like I'm the annoying person who's constantly bringing things up to get attention or stay longer in therapy. No, 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 no. <clears throat> we don't see it like that. I'll read the rest in a second. New information is helpful. New information means that you're sharing with us as you feel more comfortable, as you're willing to open up and able to recall things. That's beautiful. We love it. It's not about wanting to stay longer or get attention. There's just a lot going on. And as you're able, you're sharing it with us. And that is amazing. And I love it. Okay. I'm in treatment for social anxiety. And as a homework assignment, I needed to write down all the moments in which I got anxious. Most of these are related to social interactions. Surprise. But some topics are completely different. For example, sometimes I have periods in which I get anxious and get, I'm anxious to get extremely ill. In the two weeks I had this homework assignment, I was in that, what if I get ill period? And it caused me a lot of stress. So I mentioned it as an add-on in therapy, as you should, you totally should. But now I'm struggling with, why did I mention that? It has nothing to do with my social anxiety. Okay. When we come into therapy, we come usually with a purpose. Like I'm going in for grief. You're going in for social anxiety. Is that all that we're going to talk about? Not by a long shot life is fucking complicated. Things come up out of the blue for different reasons. Your social anxiety comes from somewhere. It might have a root that is different than anxiety, right? My grief might tie to other things in my life. Um, we haven't come up with that yet because we're still treatment planning. But let's say my grief ties into my anxiety and my uh, worry about losing Sean at some point. You know what I mean? Like it could be very complicated. Also, life is happening while I'm trying to process this grief and I could have other things go on. Traumas could happen. I could realize I work too much and my work-life balance is off and I did want to work on that too. So many things, okay? You don't have to go in for one issue. And maybe it's, I don't think I've talked about this and I probably should, that you don't have to go in for into therapy for one thing and stay with one thing. But having someone who can who specializes or at least has a deep understanding of the main issue that's bothering us is going to be helpful knowing that that one issue is not the only one. It'd be awesome if we we're just like, oh, I only have one issue. And then I go in and I work on that one issue. And, you know, but it's it's never like that, unfortunately. Okay. Um, all Okay, so it has nothing to do with my social anxiety. And these anxious thoughts are always for a few weeks. All of the other weeks are fine. So I don't have to work on this. What is my therapist thinking? Is he annoyed and thinking, here we go again. I'm scared to ask him. Well, thank you, anxiety. <laughs> and even though you are another therapist and can't answer this question for your colleagues, I'm wondering what your thoughts are when a client is mentioning something completely new. Overall, my thought is helpful, helpful, helpful. Yes, yes, yes. I'm taking notes. I'm jotting down thoughts that I have. I'm attaching it to your social anxiety potentially, if I think it's connected or not. It's always helpful. I'm always glad when someone brings up something new in general, period. Because the only thing that would hinder your therapeutic process is you not sharing anything. Because as a therapist, if I don't have like a full picture of your life and what's happening 
I'm not going to be able to help you in the way that I could if I had all the information. And also, yes, I want to acknowledge it takes us a while to share what we're dealing with and what we're going through, and even just to remember everything um, and to feel comfortable enough to mention some of those things. It can take some time. And that's why new stuff is supposed to almost always be revealed slowly but surely in therapy. Um, so you're you're doing it right, okay? Okay. Let's move on to question number four. And this question says, hey, Katie, I hope you're doing well. My question is about providers crying in session. Okay, we're human too, but let's get into this. I was having a bit of a crisis last week. And while explaining the situation and my feelings about it to my dietitian, she started crying. At first, I was so surprised by it. And I thought that she was just joking, but no, she was actually crying heartfelt tears. And she told me why. She explained I wish you knew that you fundamentally have the right to eat when you're hungry. It's your birthright. And I'm sad that you've been through so many hard things in life and that you've started to question if you are wrong or bad or if you deserve to eat. I immediately began to apologize and feel responsible for taking care of my dietitian's feelings. I wanted to console her. I felt bad for putting her through the tough emotions that would cause her to cry. And then, because I felt obligated to, to make her feel better, I agreed to eat a small amount. The next day, my dietitian texted me to tell me that she had called my therapist and told her she cried in our session. I've signed a waiver for them to talk together, so that's not the issue. But when she told me this, my immediate reaction in my head was, no, why would you do that? And I felt embarrassed that my therapist now knew about what happened. Why did you feel embarrassed for her? That's interesting. My question is, how do I handle my emotions about her crying? I felt so uncomfortable and awkward because I never allow myself to cry ever. Even if I feel upset and I want to cry, I just can't. So to see someone else do it because they care about me, I felt so guilty and jealous all at the same time. I also wondered if I was being manipulated into eating. I guess those are what they call trust issues. Yes. And I'm wondering why did I have that reaction? The feeling like I needed to care uh, to take care of or console her and be the responsible one. That's what I'm wondering about. Finally, why did I feel embarrassed about it? It's not like I was the one crying. And this is where it all comes together in my mind. It says, for context, I was a parentified child. Ding, ding, ding. There we have it. We'll dig into this. I was a parentified child growing up and I have complex PTSD, OCD, anxiety, and an eating disorder. Could the complex PTSD and or anxiety have anything to do with my reaction to this situation? Okay, now we have, I think, two or three comments on this, but... Let's dig into this. Now, it's interesting. I would, I, your, your dietitian did the right thing by telling your therapist about it because it's not her role or her job to um, help us kind of unpack the like emotional component of things. She's mainly there for food and trying to help you with that. But she's a person too. And for whatever reason, she expressed what you maybe could have expressed. She did it for you which I find really interesting. And a part of, I don't think she has very good boundaries. Now it's not a judgment, I'm not saying she's bad at her job. I'm just saying she did the right thing. She clearly couldn't handle, she couldn't hold that for you. She, and she's human, right? I want you all to know that professionals are human. Um, I've cried with a patient once. I've had, uh, a lot of my colleagues have cried with patients. Sometimes it's, sometimes you just, you feel so bad for what happened. And, we're human too. And sometimes we have human reactions, right? Um, so yeah, so sometimes it's okay. 
you know, and we're, we, we're doing the best we can. So I think she's good at her job. I love that she called your therapist, but here's the thing. And this is what you're wondering about too. Your reaction is what's interesting. Now, the fact that you were embarrassed for her, like why'd she tell my, the therapist shows me that you are embarrassed or ashamed of your emotions. If you cried, you wouldn't want anybody to know, which is probably why you aren't able to cry in session. And the fact that she did it, it's actually, she's modeling beautiful behavior. She cried when something sad happened. She talked about it. She told your therapist about it. And you are having this, oh, no, 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 no. This is so embarrassing. We shouldn't be doing this. And I'm wondering where you got that from. I mean, you were a parentified child. So did you always have to be the responsible one? Because that's what you said up in your question before saying you were a parentified child. You said, um, why did I have that reaction? Like, why did I feel embarrassed about it? Um, or no, why did I feel like I need to take care of her and console her and be the responsible one? Did you ever have to take care of somebody else in your family? Console them when they were upset? Be the responsible one? Do you find yourself being overly responsible in life now? A lot of times, but not always, it's probably because I'm working on my um, attachment workshop. It's available for purchase on my website. But being overly responsible or what I would call even toxically independent, where we're like, I don't need nobody. I only need myself. I'm the only one I can count on because we've always only been able to count on ourselves. That comes out of that like avoidant attachment or what we call anxious avoidant attachment. Um, And that's because our parents weren't around. Or they were, at the very least, extremely inconsistent in their care and showing up for us. And so I think this is all stemming from your attachment and the parentified child. Because we could say, you know, oh, complex PTSD, OCD, anxiety, all of this eating disorder. I would argue that these diagnoses that you've been given all come out of abuse growing up. And that abuse might not have been an action. It could have been inaction. It could have been neglect. I think you were emotionally neglected and that's why you were the parentified child. And I assume you probably took care of your parents or parent and you were also their emotional Sherpa when they should have been yours. And you never got a chance to be a kid and a chance to develop and feel like it was okay to fall apart. You always had to hold it together for everybody else. I don't know if you had other siblings, but if you did, you probably took care of them also. And so if they were sad, you consoled them. Hence why when someone else cries, you feel that need because that's your role. It's like, you know, I talk about the family dance. It's like when that dietitian of yours cried, it was like that old familiar music of like when your siblings or your parent would get upset and you were like, oh, I know my role. I know what steps to do in this dance. My step is to go in and console and take care of. And the fact they told someone else, oh, that's embarrassing. We shouldn't be doing that. Keep it all in the family. You know, I have a feeling there's some of that going on here. And so all of that to say that this upbringing, this neglect, the reason you were parentified, I would assume has led to anxiety. Being overly responsible really just means hypervigilant slash anxious. OCD is an anxiety disorder. I put it under that umbrella. An eating disorder is to give you some semblance of control while everything felt like it was spiraling out. And the complex PTSD because of the repeated traumas. It's all connected. I'm not saying that to minimize at all. Each individual diagnosis, you know, has its own symptoms and pain points for you. And is some, I'm glad that you're getting support and help for it. I'm just telling you that it all makes sense. And all of that feeds directly into your response to your dietitian crying. 
if you're able, I bring this up with your therapist. You can even say like, I asked this weird therapist on the internet and she told me this <laughs> and see what they say, because it's definitely all, it's, it's old behavior for you. You went into kind of autopilot and you feeling bad for putting her through tough emotions as if tough emotions are somehow bad, right? There's lots of judgment. Um, yeah. And to make her feel better, you felt the obligation. I, I'd be curious, maybe you can even journal or just talk with your therapist about where that obligation comes from. Did you ever get to fall apart? What would it look like if you did? I might encourage you to try to let yourself fall apart a little bit. It's going to be really uncomfortable, but also probably incredibly healing. And you've probably been waiting to fall apart forever. So keep me posted. Okay. There was a comment on it said, my therapist has also been teary several times in session. We've talked about it a bit and I'm asked why he feels so much that he gets teary eyed, but he has said that he doesn't really know why, but he doesn't usually react this way with other clients, hmm. especially not as often as with me. I think there are reasons he is not mentioning possibly. Um, if you don't feel, so obviously therapists can cry because we're human, but we can also, it can be close to home. It could have been a similar situation where we had a friend or family member go through something similar or ourselves go through something similar. Um, but if it gets in the way of us being able to do therapy with that therapist, they should refer us out. Um, you know, it'd be like me trying to help a patient with grief right now when I'm like in the thick of it. And as I talk about the loss of maybe their grandma, I'm like, ooh, I can't hold myself together. Therefore, I don't think I'd be a good fit at the time. Okay. I'm not saying he's not. I'm just saying it's possible that maybe if it's getting in the way of our th our treatment and therapy, that maybe we should see somebody else. Okay. Um, Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey, well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Okay, he said, oh, I think there are reasons he's not mentioning, and I want to respect his privacy and the therapeutic relationship that we have by not asking about it too much. But I'd really like to explore this more and understand why someone might feel so strongly about me that they get teary-eyed. I struggle to understand how anyone could like me at all. Oh, interesting. I have complex PTSD and I've talked to him a bit about how I feel when he has been emotional, but I wonder how much I can ask him about his feelings and reactions the next time this happens. Could there be a therapeutic point in letting me explore his feelings? And if so, how do I best do it? I love this question because there's nothing therapeutic about you exploring his emotions, but there is a ton of therapeutic pay dirt here about uh, your reactions to his feelings and his emotions, that feeling that you didn't think anybody could ever like you at all. So how am I having this effect on someone? It goes against what we believe. We're very curious about it. We might even crave it because we've never gotten that before. So I think it's fair to bring it up again, but I want you to know that we're not going to be able to dig into anything about him because it actually doesn't have anything to do with him. I know therapy is weird like that. Our therapist is reacting in a way that we think is like, oh my God, he's, he's crying. Oh, oh, right. And it's about me. It must be something about him. Sure. It might be, but what's more important than that, because this is your therapy session is 
why you're reacting the way that you're reacting. Why are we craving this? Why is this so interesting to us? What is this bringing up for us? Yeah, I would dig into that. I, there's nothing wrong with bringing this up again. Just know that you're not going to be able to dig into his emotions or why he's feeling the way he's feeling. We're going to dig into your emotions and why you're, why like why his emotional reaction is affecting you the way that it is. Okay. So I'd bring it up um, from that standpoint. I think he will definitely be able to talk about it. Okay. Other part, another add-on says, Hey Katie, I have an add-on. I have the opposite issue. I feel misunderstood and like I'm nothing because my psychiatrist and psychologist never seem to show any emotion when I let them know that I'm suffering. Hmm. Is this because they cannot show emotion? Is it because I have BPD? Is it because I've been with them for four years now and don't recover from the um, eating disorder and the self-harm? Also, what could be the reason why I cannot recover when I'm trying my best to? Once again, thank you. We love you all. Love you too. Thank you. Um, Okay. This is interesting. I'm curious what emotions you're hoping they show and what it would mean if they did. Because there's something about this. It's, it is kind of BPD where we're looking outward to try to get validation for how we feel inward. And it, there's nothing wrong with that. Needing that is a human it's like a basic human need, right? I've talked about like needing attention. People talk about like it's a bad thing or needing, you know, needing validation. Those are all human needs. You're needing validation. And I'm curious if you've ever received it before. And if you did, what did it look like? Just out of curiosity, because a lot of my BPD patients were emotionally neglected or abused in some way. So they never got to feel supported, seen, um, heard. And therefore, you know, we have borderline personality disorder. It, that's why it's so painful. I think a lot of people mis- misunderstand BPD because they see it for the us lashing out and the splitting behavior, which is part of it if we don't manage it. But more so than that, it's just really uncomfortable to be someone with borderline personality disorder because we just feel so dysregulated all the time because of our environment. We're like super sensitive to our environment. And so you're picking up on this. And I think that's why I'm just curious about it. What kind of emotion would you want them to show? What would that do for you? Because clearly you're needing the validation and there's nothing wrong with needing validation. Um, It's not because you've been with them for four years and you still struggle. That's not why. Um, It's more about what it means for you. I'm not so much curious about them. As therapists, we're not supposed to show emotion, by the way. Through ver- like through body language and verbal affirmations, we are supposed to validate your experience. So when you're talking about th- that you're suffering, a therapist should say, or your psychologist, I guess, should say something like, I'm so sorry you're going through that. That sounds really terrible and really uncomfortable, right? That's us acknowledging and validating your experience. And that can be really, really powerful and really important for us. So they should be doing that. Other than that, though, we're not supposed to really show emotion because we shouldn't be, um, I don't want, I don't, there's no better word other than tainting your experience. I don't want my emotional experience to get in the way of you being able to experience it yourself in an authentic way. Does that make sense? Because you know, sometimes you're out with a friend and you're like talking about something and you're just like mildly agitated and they get angry about it. They're like, I can't believe that person did that. And then that feeds into our mild agitation. Then we become angry because we're like, yeah, you know what? Yeah. Now, if we're, if this person who 
shows this emotion and is really, really angry about it is our therapist. Of course, we're going to like, we're like, oh, wow, I must have been downplaying this. Yeah. And then we, we like pick up and we get more angry and agitated or more upset. And so it's really not helpful for us to have a therapist that shows a ton of emotion and like taints our experience. What is important is to have a therapist validate what we're going through and um, help us feel seen and heard. Does that make sense? So that's really where this is coming from, but it's okay to bring it up with them and and dig into why this is so hurtful for you and, and what you could be needing from them. I think that's okay. And it might be helpful for you to, to uh, work on expressing your needs and asking for them until they get met. I know it's really hard for those of us with BPD. And with that, let's move on to question number five. And this question says, hi, Katie, I hope you're doing well. I am. I hope you're doing well. It says, you've talked about how important boundaries are in therapy, especially with clients with BPD. Yes. Does this mean that your boundaries shift when it comes to a client with BPD? Yes, I'll talk about that. Also, you've mentioned that when a client asks you for a hug, you usually give it to them. What if a client is diagnosed with BPD? Do you still give them a hug if they ask? Yes, I do. I've asked my therapist if she could give me a hug after a hard session about a month ago, and she said no, because according to her, it's boundary crossing. It could be. I felt so embarrassed and humiliated, and I find it hard now to make eye contact with her after this. I have not been diagnosed with BPD, even though I think that I might have some traits, but I'm wondering if she noticed it and that's why she refused, or if she really thinks that touching clients is unethical. Also, I wonder if she has the same boundaries with every client. Finally, I'd like to thank you so much for everything you do. Your videos and podcasts are so healing and comforting. Oh, I'm so glad. Okay, lot to unpack here. Now, first of all, my boundaries do shift. Not in a huge way, but with my patients with BPD, boundaries have to be very clear and communicated and upheld in order for my client to feel safe. Does that make sense? Because if I have a patient who has BPD and they come into my office and they're very dysregulated and the attachment rights, they want to overly attach and they want to, it's just, if anybody doesn't understand what BPD is, it's essentially this intense fear of abandonment. We often have abuse in our past. And so we have like kind of a, it's usually a parent. So we'll have kind of like a void, um, meaning we could have, been, could have been emotionally neglected or abused. And a therapist is a great person to try to take and try to push into that void. And so the boundaries that I have with my BPD patients becomes really important so that they, I prevent them from trying to do that, to put me in that void and help them offer that love and support to themselves. Does that make sense? But anyway, the boundaries are really important so that the attachment issue that comes up with BPD is better managed. And boundaries look like things like um, if you try to reach me outside of our session time, know that it can take me up to 24 hours to get back to you. And the only reason is that you would need to reach out to me is if there's an emergency or if you need to reschedule an appointment. And, um, you know, and if you do this, I'm not, you know, like um, threats of safety will not be tolerated. You must call 911, take yourself to the hospital if you're leaving a threat on my voicemail, because again, I might not get back to you for 24 hours. And that means you're in crisis and you need to call 911 or take yourself to the hospital. You know, it's just, it, it arguably is kind of like basic therapy boundaries, but they have to be very rigid. In my opinion, they have to be pretty rigid when it comes to my BPD patients so that therapy can be effective for them. Now, is everyone going to agree with me? No. But if my patient asks me for a hug after a really tough session, I say it's okay but that's my personal choice. Now, many therapists don't offer any physical touch to any client, no matter the circumstance. And that might be 
your therapist's take on it because um, she said, according to her, it's boundary crossing. So she might not allow it at all. And that would be my guess because the fact that she had her answer right away, like, oh no, it's boundary. I don't, I just don't do that. I don't think she does it at all. Um, and a lot of therapists, a lot of psychologists, a lot of mental health professionals are like that. I happen to not be one because sometimes I do think that kind of um, connection can be healing. But it, again, it has to have therapeutic benefit. I've only hugged a couple patients in my entire practice. I mean, I know I'm not practicing now, but I did practice for what it would have been since 2009 until two years ago. So I don't know, you do the math, um, a long time. But anyway, it it's just, I mean, maybe two or three that I've hugged because not most people don't want that. Um, and also there's a lot of, you know, it's a different type of relationship, right? But for you, it felt helpful and soothing. And I think that's why I would have allowed it. But that's my own personal take on it. I wouldn't be embarrassed. I know it's easier said than done. You're already embarrassed, but there's nothing to be embarrassed about. You ask for something and she doesn't offer that essentially, but it doesn't have anything to do with you. It's everything to do with like her rules and her boundaries. Um, and I, I mean, if you feel open to, I know you probably don't, but you could talk to her about it because this might've brought up some stuff from like childhood or other things going on. And I want you to feel like you can talk about it. If you hear growling, I don't know, Roxy thinks she hears something. Um, She's right behind me having a nap. So I would talk to her about it because it was so hurtful for you. And boundaries do shift. This is the last thing I want to say. I shift boundaries according to my different patients because of the fact that every patient's kind of different. And in order for therapy to be the most beneficial for them, the boundary, you know, they don't have to always be as rigid. Like for a patient with social anxiety, it's not, it's not going to be as potentially detrimental if um, I don't know. I'm trying to think of something that I would allow them to do that I wouldn't, I don't know. For most, most of the time, the boundaries are the same. I think I'm just more rigid with BPD patients because I know how important those boundaries are because I really don't allow anybody to act any differently. Sorry. I just had to think it out. Cause I'm like, I guess they do kind of shift, but it's not really the boundaries themselves that shift. It's the rigidity of them. Um, I might be a little bit more flexible. Like let's say my social, social anxious patient called and said like, Hey, I'm just having a hard time. I might call them back and do a quick like check-in where if a BPD patient did, I might not because I w want them to be able to regulate and I don't want them to depend on me again. Don't want them to put me in that void. Does that make sense? So that would be kind of how it would shift. Okay. Let's move on to question number six. This question says, hi, Katie, can you tell me more about journaling? How do you use it? How do you recommend your clients use it? It's helpful to, to me a lot when I feel anxious, getting rid of all of those thoughts helps. It really does, doesn't it? But when it comes to processing different thoughts, beliefs, or feelings, I feel like I intellectualize this process on paper, and then I get distracted, and I think about the same topic in my head. When I caught myself doing it, though, oh, when I caught myself doing it, I thought that I should actually have this conversation on paper and not in my head, but then again, I started to write, uh, I start to write rationally. Is it actually how it's supposed to be? I have no idea. I write a few sentences and then I go in my head for five to 10 minutes. And then again, a few sentences, that's normal, but we'll talk about it. And five minutes in my head. I hope that makes, I hope I'm making sense with all of this. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, especially in the context of trauma, emotional neglect and abuse, physical abuse, dealing with shame, blame and guilt. I hope you're having a great day. I am. Okay. Let's dig into this. Now it's normal for us to think about things for a little bit and then put it down on paper. And the reason being that we're just essentially trying to 
um, gather our thoughts, right? Because thoughts can race like a million miles a minute. That's why I honestly would prefer to type out my journaling because I could do it faster and I could like keep up with the thoughts. But we find it's just not as beneficial as writing it out. Something about the slowing down is actually helpful. Now hear me out. But I think if you're if you prefer to type and you're not going to write, I'll take some journaling typing versus none, okay? But it, the the act of writing it out and slowing it down allows us to see things we wouldn't be able to see otherwise, right? Thoughts race and we don't have time even to kind of keep up with them all. And so when we're ha- when we're forced to kind of slow down and take like the last 5-10 minutes of thoughts and condense them into something on paper, that's processing. I know, magical, right? And then when we write, we also process other things. We have other realizations. You're like, I feel like I intellectualize. Yes, that's probably one of your defense mechanisms and you just uncovered it through journaling. And that's what's beautiful about journaling. I intellectualize also and I catch myself doing it because um, I'll say something, let's say, um, and I was just so angry about that. But I understand that my anger is coming from this because it felt out of control and I don't like feeling out of control, right? And as I'm doing it, I'm like, shut up, Katie, in my journal. Shut up, Katie. You're trying to rationalize. It's okay to feel this way, right? So that slowing down and that writing allows for another level of processing. And that's what makes journaling so beneficial. I know I talk about it like we get stuff out and we get it out of our heads and off of our minds so that we're not ruminating on it. Yes, that's part number one. Part number two is it helps us process our thoughts and slow them down. Part number three is that then we get to see patterns of behavior and thought patterns as we write them down. You know, there's so many layers to this and that's what makes it so beautiful. And this kind of conversation that you're having with yourself and this in my head onto paper is very, very normal and natural and I wouldn't fight back against it. I think it's helpful as long as you're finding um, journaling to be beneficial. I personally, the way that I know journaling's working is I don't feel like I'm ruminating or freaking out on my own as much because I'm getting like taking the edge off, right? I'm letting a little bit out. And so therefore I'm not like, I don't know, anxiously worrying about something I can't change as much. Some And actually for me at this point, because I've been journaling every day for like 12 weeks, I don't do that anymore at all. And oh, my sleep is so much better, you guys. Okay, you have no idea. So anyway, it's very beneficial that way. Now there's a comment on this that says, I've been told to do journaling by my therapist and read it again to understand what's coming up for me. And I also share it with him as I have a tough time opening up. I've seen that totally new things come up for, um, come up or a reason for my survival strategy emerges um, from which it makes me scared to even reread my own journal entry. Is it common for people to feel this way? Yes. Uh, wanting to reread your own journal can feel ugh. Like even part of the artist way that workbook I'm doing, I want to say it's like in week, I don't know, like four or five, we're supposed to go back into our journals from however long ago and reread them and like highlight some of the patterns. And I haven't done it. It's so cringy. I don't want to, right? I'm like, Katie from back then isn't Katie now. I don't want to remember. I don't want to recall. I don't want to dig into it, right? It can feel uncomfortable, it's part of that process, right? But it's really helpful. And I would just let them know what's coming up for you and the fact that you don't really want to. And let's dig into the why, because that's what I was journaling about the other day personally. And um, it's because I have a lot of self-judgment because I feel kind of embarrassed about what I might've written because I don't have no idea, right? It feels kind of silly. 
I'm, I'm minimizing, I'm invalidating, right? So notice what comes up for you, what you think. Why Why is it that you're afraid to reread this journal entry? And you said um, the, the new things come up or a reason for your survival strategy is that are you afraid to read about that stuff? I'm not 100% sure what you mean by that. If we're talking like suicidal ideations or a safety plan, I don't know. Um, is that too triggering? But talk to your therapist about it and f- let them know what's coming up and where you think it's coming from. Because again, another layer of how, how journaling is helping and helpful in therapy. And it can just give us another opportunity to, to process. Okay. Moving on to question number seven, this question says, Hey Katie, as a child, I was totally spoiled and my parents didn't seem to trust in my capabilities. Oh, so they were helicopter parents, um, capabilities to cope with age appropriate things on my own due to me having been born way too early. Oh, I was emotionally nurtured, maybe even too much. At the same time, I was parentified and had to mediate fights and my mother and father relied on me for emotional reassurance and care. I seem to feel responsible for everyone and everything. Sounds like there were no boundaries. Sounds very enmeshed and codependent. But I struggle to take responsibility for myself. Self-care is a huge problem and intimacy with a romantic partner is a threat. Also, I feel guilty most of the time and I'm still emotionally entangled with my mother and look for her love and support, but I desperately want to stand on my own feet emotionally. Any tips to get out of this? Thank you so much. Yes, I feel like we don't talk enough about the fact that the opposite. We talk about neglect and abuse, but we don't talk about the fact that over uh, like helicopter parents can be just as abusive and just as uh, harmful and painful at that enmeshment and codependence. Now, if you don't know what enmeshment and codependence is, enmeshment means there are no boundaries in your family or in your relationships. Their feelings and emotional experience can become your feelings and emotional experience. It's, it's like you're almost like enmeshed. Think of like one person, you're smooshed together, right? And you can struggle to make any decisions without their input. Now, codependent means that together you sustain. Now, the way that I've heard it described, it's usually in relation to addiction. So just hear me out because I love this definition. It's very true and it's very clear. It said codependence is when they're the person who's the addict, their addiction is let's say alcohol, drugs, whatever. And the other person's addiction is them. And together they sustain, right? Um, But it sounds like there's something, at least enmeshment, possibly codependence going on in your family. Um, And you could dig into codependence more. I could probably look up the actual definition for you. So you, um, you know exactly what it is. It says it's characterized by excessive emotional or psychological reliance on a partner typically one that requires support on account of an illness or an addiction. So it's just an imbalanced relationship where one person enables another person's destructive behavior. Um, Now in your family, that's what was going on. So that's why you feel also because you were a preemie baby, your parents like took extra, extra, extra care of you and made it so that you essentially never got a chance to do things on your own, that helicopter parenting thing. Um, which is probably why self-care is a huge problem because you're like, what intimacy doesn't, you know, those are things that you would do on your own and you're not used to doing things on your own. So you're like, somebody else does that for me. Wait, what? Right. Um, Inner child work is going to be incredibly healing for you. I know we talk about that a lot when it comes to abuse, but these are just different extremes of the same thing. Um, And we're going to have to do some exposure therapy. So inner child work, meaning we're going to have to get in touch with younger you and 
tell them maybe what, what they needed to hear. Things like, I know you're strong on your own. I know you can try this out. Let's, let's see this, you know, let's, you got to let, it's hard for parents who have a child that was high needs when they were born, realize when they need to try to do things on their own and let them fail. Like one of the most important things is to let children explore. I don't know if you guys, I forget the researcher, but the, but it's all, I mean, in new parenting books and new parenting styles, they talk about this a lot, how it's really important to let your child like climb on things that are kind of dangerous and not like going to hurt them, hurt them like really bad, but like let them fall off and like skin their knee. I know it's really hard to let that happen, but children need to learn to be able to trust in themselves and to know their boundaries. And they don't know if we don't let them learn it. And this person essentially never was allowed to learn it. So now as an adult, you're afraid to scratch your knee, right? You're like, I just can't try. I got to ask my mom for the, I can't do, you know, we don't feel secure enough because we never got that opportunity. That's why kind of free roaming play is really helpful and healing for children. So I'm just throwing that out there. Again, obviously not like intense injury, but you know, they should be able to fall and like things get ruined and they don't realize, you know, we need them to learn and be able to handle it on their own. It's really good for their development. Now, inner child work is going to be helpful for you because you never got that chance. And we might want to write to younger us and tell him or her that, you know, you can do all this. I know you can. All the messages you wish you received. And then the like exposure therapy I was talking about is essentially challenging yourself to do things and not check in with your mom or anybody else. And it's going to be uncomfortable. And exposure therapy works like uh, like this. We come up with some resources or ways to calm us down. And then we slowly engage with the thing that's hard or stress-inducing or anxiety-producing. Meaning, let's say body shakes work for me, journaling. I call my therapist. I, ha- I call my friend and I go for walks, okay? So we have all these like resources. I also can go to my happy place in my head. Those things help calm me down. Now I have my list of things that I could do. Maybe I could go to the grocery store on my own. I, and I don't know. I'm just making up stuff. I go to the grocery store on my own and I don't call my mom to ask what brand or what kind of thing or something. Maybe that's like like level two. So I try to do that, right? Or maybe I imagine that I go to do it. Anyway, we're going to have to slowly engage in these situations, these life uh, tasks without asking for permission from our mom or um, any of her input from our dad or mom and slowly try new things and slowly do things on our own and prove to ourselves that we can, because it's just, we're just stuck in this old pattern. And the only way to get out um, is to challenge it. And then also I want to throw in, there is codependence anonymous. Um, You can look online. There are free groups. I would encourage you maybe to check one out and see if it rings true for you. Um, I think it could be really beneficial, especially just to hear people in similar situations and to learn. Do not, uh, do not date or become friends with people from that group. It could be very chaotic for you right now. I know that sounds really judgmental. That's not the way I mean it. I just mean when we are codependent, we tend to like other people who are also codependent. So let's just, let's not do that, but let's go to not feel like something's wrong with us to be reminded that it can get better. And to hopefully maybe as you feel comfortable, share your story. Okay. Okay. Final question, question number eight. It says, hey, Katie, recently I've been hearing a lot about AI, you and me both, chat GPT and all of that. I'm curious to hear your take on the subject. Personally, I do use chat GPT sometimes, but I don't see it as a therapist or a replacement for one, me neither. To me, it's more like a journal that talks back. 
Thanks for all the work you do and the wonderful information you provide. Of course. And there was a comment that said, also, how do you feel about using this for crisis support? So using chat GPT and AI for crisis support. I've noticed it really re- it's really reassuring and supportive, sometimes more so than the actual crisis support lines. But do you think it's doing more harm to rely on AI than humans when seeking support? These are all great questions. Now, when it comes to ChatGPT, I played around with it a little bit. I've only used it um, to clean up language in like emails so far and um, language when I'm working on um, uh, like things on my website when we were putting the website together, we didn't have it and it came out. And so for some, it cleaned up some of the like language of my bio and stuff like that. So we've used chat GPT a little bit. Um, I, it's still learning how to use it, right? You have to ask it questions and it, it gives you text. Um, I don't think it's the replacement for a therapist. It doesn't, I've even tried just to see what it would do. Like, hey, could you give me a paragraph on X? And it, it I can even say in the voice of Katie Morton, because I have so much content online and it does a moderate job, but I feel like it always, it will always miss out on that, that human element, you know? the piece that makes it feel more real. So it won't ever replace therapists, but I do think it can be great for crisis support and triaging. Now hear me out. Like the person said, it seems really reassuring and supportive because they can cater it to that. And I've heard from a lot of you that you talk to a real crisis person, like a person, and they're the fucking worst. And at least with this, we don't have to factor in the human element where some people are bad at their jobs or don't like being a crisis support worker, right? And so the fact that we know that we'll always get supportive and reassuring help when we call a crisis line or something or text with one is going to be so much more helpful and healing. And I think that in the moment, that's fine. And I have no problem with it because I think as long as we're getting the support we need and people are feeling better, I don't, I'm not scared of AI like a lot of people are. I think we need to be cautious a little bit about things, but I think in this case, I'm, I'm fine with it. If it saves a life, totally worth it. But when it comes to therapy itself, it's just not going to be as good. Um, but triaging, meaning uh, triage just helps figure out what the issue is and where we should be sent, right? Um, in the hospital system, we call triaging like in the ER when they come in, you go to this room and they take like your blood pressure and your blood work and they do these certain things to figure out where to send you. Okay. Oh, you're having GI stuff. We're going to send you over here. Oh, you, you're pregnant. We need to go here, right? And it's just where where do you have to go? We triage you, or at least that's the way we always use that term. And so I think that this could be helpful when it comes to that, when for intakes, I think if we wanted to do intakes on patients, if for clinics or hospitals or any kind of treatment, we could get out of the AI based chat, what kinds of, um, symptoms you're having, what medication you're on, what's really bothering you, what kind of help you're looking for and place you with the right help. So I assume, I mean, I don't know, but I would assume those online resources like BetterHelp or Talkspace. um, And isn't there another one, Cerebral? But anyway, I would assume that they're using that to help place you or maybe already have been using it. Um, And I don't see anything wrong with that, but I do tread lightly because we don't know a ton about it. And I think there's still things to be developed and to be better understood. But for crisis support, I am down for that. And for maybe some triaging and um, basic intakes, I think is helpful also. Um, but yeah, it's not a replacement for a therapist. But if it can offer some tools and techniques, you know, again, in chat form, like when it comes to just texting, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But again, it's still it's not therapy, but it could be a therapeutic resource. Does that make sense? I hope so. But great question and something that we should continue to talk about because I do think um, 
you know, it, like anything, it could be used for good. It could be used for evil. And we just need to keep an eye on it and make sure that people aren't using chat GPT and, and pretending that it's their work when it's not, you know, stuff like that kind of worries me. But um, yeah, and like deep fakes and stuff creep me out. But I think it can be helpful in the mental health space for some crisis support. Okay. Thank you all so much for listening and watching. Thank you for sharing this podcast. Thank you for sending in your questions. I love you all. Have a wonderful, wonderful week. Do your homework and I'll see you next time. Bye.